You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Hello and welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal. I'm an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Uh, Racial differences have uh, been dividing us for a very long time, but they have received special media attention uh, in the last few years. Uh, Opinions abound as to what the right approach is. Uh, Should we go the colorblind direction? Should we seize on to anti-racism? Or should we do something else? Uh, Here with one of the uh, something else options uh, is Professor George Yancey, uh, professor at the Institute for the Studies of Religion at Baylor University, uh, one of the 10 most trusted universities in the country, Dr. Yancey, uh, according to a recent poll. Uh, I assume you are uh, contributing to that significantly. Uh, Dr. Yancey, uh, thank you, first off, for writing this book. Uh, It was really interesting, uh, and I uh, I, I think I'm largely on board with it, but uh, uh, I have to think a little more about it. But let's let's start with uh, where you begin in the book. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about the the colorblind approach to race relations? Uh, what is that? Sure. So what some people say is what we have to do is to deal with racism with ignore race. So that if if I don't see your race, I can't treat you differently because of your race, and therefore racism ends. And so this is the approach that I call colorblindness, because when you, when you listen to adherence to this approach, they admonish those of us who bring race into the conversation and say, well, you bring your race to the conversation is what the problem is. Uh, so, you know, this is not a group that is in a, any sort of classical sense of a racist group. You know, these are not people who are racist. And indeed, what they want, what, in their mind, what they want to do is get rid of racism by getting rid of the notions of race, and that's colorblindness. Right. So you're you're applying for a job, and there's there's just no box on the form right, yeah. for your race, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, what are what are uh, what are some of the weaknesses with that approach? I, I mean, that that kind of mm-hmm. sounds right. You know, uh, yeah. uh, the the Martin Luther King Jr. I, I shouldn't judge someone by the uh, color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That that sounds very colorblind to me. Uh, why why shouldn't we do that? Yeah, it sounds good. Uh, you know, that particular uh, statement by King has been debated by people who are colorblind and people who are not, you know, sure. what do you really mean? I'm going to stay out of that for right now. It's not that important, but I just want to be clear that there's not a universal acceptance that he was acting a colorblind approach. Right. You know, here's, here's the problem. Uh, if there's no problem, I mean, if, if our race really does not impact us, does not really matter to us, then this makes sense. However, there's reams of research suggesting to the contrary, that the fact that I'm an African-American is going to impact my life. Uh, and usually, although not always, in a negative way. And so since that's the case, what's happening with a colorblind approach is there's a problem, there's a wound, and we're going to ignore it and hope it goes away. And in reality, it doesn't work out that way. 
So the problem with colorblindness is it doesn't comport to the reality that people of color experience. And so to go to a person of color and say, hey, why don't we just ignore your race? That just doesn't work. And it's not something that they can accept unless they won't accept that. Is it fair to think of the colorblind approach as as aspirational, as a goal? Like we would like our society to be at the point where you know, someone applies for a job and it doesn't matter what their race is. Uh, you know, neither neither the applicant nor the employer cares. Mm. It's it's an interesting demographic feature and, and nothing else. Or, or is even saying it that way missing something? You know, I think that all approaches have some sort of goal in mind, and a lot of times the goals look differently. And so, I think a colorblind goal is going to look different from, say, anti-racism goal or something like that. Uh, but I, you know, I think it's fair that you know, one argument that some of them do make is, even though we're not there, isn't this where we should be heading towards? And so to head towards it, we have to be there right now, even though, you know, there, there may be these inequities. Uh, I, I still struggle with that because that assumes that by being colorblind, these inequities go away. And I don't have confidence that that's the case. In fact, I think that that would not be the case. And I think what's more likely the case is that inequities would be baked into our system. Right. Uh, uh, I guess I should say colorblindness, the, the goal being the ending of those inequities, right? Uh, 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 I don't think anyone on the colorblind side is going to look at the you know, demographic differences between majority culture minorities and say, well, those are good, right? Uh, right. Uh, people are going to say, hey, we, we, we want everyone to sort of live equally, uh, again, as if race doesn't matter. Uh, or am I, am I being too charitable to the, uh, the colorblind well, side? Well, I think some of them will say is that those differences... Why are they there? Are they there because, you know, of racism, which is bad, which they would say, hey, if you do show racism, let's, let, let's end that. Or are they there, for example, the, the thing that I hear quite often is, you know, the police arresting African-Americans at higher rates than European-Americans. And what Kobach says, well, that's because blacks commit more crimes than whites. And so this sort of seemingly inequity really is not an unfair one as far as why police are arresting more people. You know, that leaves, that leaves other problems there, but I'm just saying that that's their approach. So inequities in themselves may not be bad unless it's tied to racism. It's tied to racism, it is bad. If it's not, well, it just may, for them, it's a natural outcome of people acting differently in, in, in similar situations. I mean, I, I like to think the colorblind people would, would assume that, would agree that the inequities are bad. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, the the disagreement might come over how do we get rid of those right what what are the tools we use uh, to to bring an end to that but uh, um, what I often what I often hear from the the colorblind side of things uh, is that at bottom the problems are not racial and I have to I have to make sure I'm saying this carefully because I want to be mm -hmm. fair to the position the the problems at bottom are not racial they are economic I think that's yeah I think that's one yeah and and you know. Whenever you're looking at an approach, obviously you have to be careful because not everyone's going. You know, there's going to be some variations in, sure. in the approach. So, so yeah. So some some individuals would would argue, and there's been argument be made that you know what we should do is have an economic uh, type of of action, for example, or or try to help the poor. And by helping the poor, you will just proportionally help people of color because they're just proportionally poor. Right. So so that becomes a solution that some people of, of the color bias would push. Uh, I'm you know, 
are there people colorblind who think inequity is always bad? I think that's a possibility, and they think that colorblinds will get us out of that. But I also think, and I'm pretty certain that for some of them, the inequity is is only bad if it's connected to racism. It's not connected to racism if it could be tied to to different cultures or, or, or different work habits, the way that they see it, then that inequity is not in and of itself bad. Right. Um, uh, well, that's uh, that's the, the colorblind side of things. Any, anything else you wanted to mention uh, on, on the colorblind approach? No. Okay. Uh, well, talk to, talk to us a little bit about anti-racism. And this is uh, more, more recent, uh, certainly in its popularity, uh, but even in its forming up as an idea. Uh, what do the anti-racists uh, want, want society to do, and what is their goal uh, that they're working towards? Yeah, so to be sure, the, the term anti-racism is relatively new, but some of these ideas are not that new. I mean, you can go back, what, 60s, 50s, there's talk about conscious raising, which was a predecessor towards this sort of stuff. So so the idea of doing this is not brand new, but the labeling of as anti-racist, which once again is a, is a great term to use, you know. I mean, right. like colorblindness is great. I would be, you know, anti-racism, hey, I'm against race, you know, I'm anti-racist, you know. So, so you know, sa- sounds great. And there's some things to, to like about it. Now, the way I define it is, you know, because you go to different places and get different definitions and have everyone argue. So what I decided to do was read the pop anti-racism literature of, of that day, which was a few years ago, and see what commonalities they had to figure out the tenets of anti-racism. So I found three major tenets. There's probably more. I found three major tenets. The first is that racism is multifaceted. It's not just about the individual races. It's about structural issues, institutional issues, different institutions. Multifaceted. Second, is that we must be intentional in tackling racial issues. That we can't just sit back and hope that it goes away, which may be a more colorblind approach, but we have to intentionally attack it. We have to intentionally confront it, deal with it. Now, I would say that if those were the two tenets of anti-racism and it stopped there, I would probably call myself an anti-racist. No no one's gonna go to school board meetings and protest that, right? I don't think so, you know, someone may, but I would, I, I would say, you know, this is this is an issue, you know, if, if that was if that was all there was to it. But the problem is this third tenet, which I saw in almost all the readings I, re- I read, uh, books that I read on this, and that tenet is, in some form or fashion, the role of whites is to do what people of color want them to do. And that becomes the problem. Because when we look at the research tied to anti-racism, anti-racism efforts, what we find is that they're not very effective. In fact, they can be detrimental. That diversity training, for example, does not appear to reduce prejudice for any sort of long period of time, if at all. And it can create backlash. So when we do anti-racism, when we come in with this aggressive stance and with an attitude that whites must do what people of color want them to do. And let me unpack that a little bit, because I know some people are going to say, no, that's not case. I would say, go ahead and find me the anti-racism book there. And let's read it carefully, because it, it manifests itself differently. In White Fragility, it manifests itself where D'Angelo basically says to whites, and I can find the passage, you know, wouldn't it be great if you listen to people of color, and after listening to them, it says you're going to try to do better. Which is basically saying, listen to them, you know, uncritically, do what they want, and try to do it better. You, you read Kindy, you know, Kindy basically lays out 
his ideas of anti-racism and specifically to adhere to that. Uh, you know, I think as Ogulu uh, talks about how whites should be given money. Uh, I hope I got that one correct. I, I'm not sure. But uh, be given money to support anti-racism efforts. So what they may ask may vary, but still whites do what people of color ask them to do. Now, you know, as an African-American man, you say, well, what's the problem? Hey, you know, you get these white people to do what you want. As a Christian, I know that uh, we don't do well getting everything we want from other people. Our tendency is to abuse that. And unfortunately, you can find examples of that happening. And this, I think, becomes a, I think this, I think this attitude is why anti-racism is not effective in prejudice reduction. When you sense these people want this out of you, you know, you're white, you may not reduce your prejudice. Why it creates backlash, why it creates a sense of, uh, well, these people are here because they're a firm action baby. They didn't earn their position. You know, and these are things all documented. When I talk about white privilege does not really create more sympathy for people of color, it just creates anger towards marginalized white people. You know, this, this is in research. This is not just my opinion. This is what research is showing us. So anti-racism, while I think has a, a really good foundation in some ways, the payoff, the solution, does not work, and I don't think will work. But if, if I'm a, if I'm part of the anti-racist crowd, uh, I, isn't my response to that going to be, well, look, yes, uh, it is minorities saying, hey, majority culture, you need to give us what we want. But that's what the majority culture was saying to us for you know two yeah. centuries. This is justice, right? This is this is and and yes, it will be abused, but the abuse of it won't be worse than the circumstance we have now. Well, I would disagree that it won't be worse than the circumstance we have now. In fact, it's feeding the circumstance we have now, which is an incredibly polarized society. So, yeah, and we can even get more polarized, unfortunately. We did have a civil war. So it's, it's as bad as it is today, it's, it's possible to be worse. So if I, I you know, I mean, let's take, this, let's take this to this logical conclusion. Then should we not pass a law saying that whites are slaves? Because Africans were slaves for, you know, for 400 years. So should we pass a law that's going to sentence that 400 years from now where whites are slaves to blacks? Because if that's, if that's our justification for, for treating whites badly, then why not? You know, why not have that law? Why not have internment camps for whites, just like we did the Japanese Americans? Why not, why not have uh, policies that hold them down like we did for Hispanic Americans? Well, I, I, I assume that, you know, if, if I were, if I were Kendi and I'm, you're, you're the expert in this, yeah. uh, but if I were one, one of the writers here, I, my, my response would be, look, we're, we don't want to create the same injustice, but we want to create the, uh, you know, the, the financial equivalent of that, right? To, to, to balance that out. We, we don't want uh, the majority culture to be our slaves, but uh, we have 400 years worth of, you know, financial, financially being held back. Uh, yeah. So let's let's create the policy that does that. It won't be enslaving white people, but it will still be a heavy burden on them in the same way we bore that heavy burden. And, and that's that's justice, and that matters more than than de-escalating polarization, right? Justice before peace, or sure. something like that. Am I am I being fair to their position? I think some would say that. Yeah, you know, once again, you know, you you don't want everyone to say all people would say something. Sure, like this. sure. Well, yeah, I, I absolutely believe some would say that. And so here's here's where I come from. All right. And this could be very controversial, 
and I'm, you know, I'm willing to back this up. You do not get justice until you get unity. You cannot get justice first and not unity. And here's why. How do you know injustice doesn't turn into revenge? You know, how do you know that you're not overcorrecting and unfairly punishing people? You know, you don't get that until people are brought into the conversation. You don't get that from one side saying, we're going to decide what is justice now. That's, yeah, that happened. That's, that's what's been happening. Why is Scott to decide what justice was for people of color? Yeah. And how did that work out? Hmm. And we are naive if we think people of color cannot uh, misuse power to, to abuse whites. That is a totally naive position. So is that what we want? Do we want revenge or do we want justice? Because you will not get justice as long as you don't have unity. Because if you don't have unity, you're going to be using your power to try to hold down other people. But if we can come together to discuss these issues, and I know some people are susceptible, we can't. And that's why come we have to change our environment so that we can. We can't right now. I believe we can change our environment to discuss these issues. Then we're going to get corrections. My position is not that we ignore the past 400 years at all, or however long we want to say. My position is not that we ignore that, but we take that into consideration in the conversation. But we don't use that then to justify whatever we want to do to European Americans. Well, I think that's a, a good place to transition into uh, your mutual accountability model. But uh, first, any, anything else uh, our listeners should, should know about anti-racism? Yeah. L- let me just add this because, you know, I don't know whether your listeners are going to be more colorblind or anti-racist. Uh, I suspect more anti-racist, but I can go on that. So let me just put this little nugget into there, into this. There is, you know, there is research that shows that the most effective way to, to get people of color hired at companies is not doing things such as diversity training, mandatory diversity training, or setting up grievance committees, or telling people how what the process they have to go through to hire people. Those are anti-racist approach. We're going to go in, we're going to tell these people how these white managers how to change things. And there's research that shows that when you do that. And it, it, it was published in one of the best journals in sociology, by the way. So this was at some low-level journal. That five years later, that company actually has fewer people of color hired. The best way is to actually talk to white managers and get them to work with you. So my, my question then is, do you want to have real change? Okay. Do you want to do things to make you feel good? Or do you want to do things to actually do good? Do you want to feel good? you want to put white managers in front of mandatory diversity training, which research shows five years later you're going to have fewer managers of color. And but you feel good because, you know, you got to tell, say what you want to say in front of these white managers. Or do you want to do good? Do you want to talk to them in a way where they can hear you and get them on board so now you recruit more people of color five years later? So that's the question I have to the anti-racist. Do you want to feel good or do you want to do good? Because research says it's not working. If it's not working, doing it again and again, expected to work, that's the definition of insanity. So do good or feel good. Uh, and this is to, if we can backtrack just a minute, uh, I don't remember what you say in the book about this. Uh, colorblind approaches, uh, do, do they, like is there is there research that shows that they don't work? Whatever whatever those are. I mean, I'm not sure yeah. exactly what that what that would even look like other than just leaving leaving the box off of applications, I guess. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think there's very many diversity training programs based on colorblindness, so it's hard to, sure. to look at that. 
you know, I, I think that what the research shows is that the colorblind assumption that we can ignore racial problems is just faulty. That, you know, and, you know, I cite research on institutional uh, discrimination and, and looking at it. You know, I, and also there's an historical effect. We look at, you know, in my book, I talk about how in housing, we've seen how our segregation has passed these deficiencies on to people of color on down the line. So, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't evaluate a program because there really is no program. There's, there's a, a, a asking for us to just ignore racial issues. And I use research to show that that's not, that's not really reflective of, of our reality. Right. Right. Which I, yeah, cer- certainly I, I think that is one of the great strengths of anti-racism is, is that being mm-hmm. firm about that statement in a way yeah. that the colorblind cra- crowd just won't be. Um, and, and really, just sort of some some of, here's here's a good way to look at it, to think about it. You know, what anti what colorblind people value is equality. What anti-racist people value is justice. Now, both of those are important. I mean, I, I don't think anyone should say you know equality not important or justice not important. But like most things, you know, there's a nuance to that. And almost anything you focus on just that, you get problems. So I think that's how I kind of see these two groups is that what they offer, I mean, there are times where I'm colorblind. When I grade my students' paper, uh, I don't look, hey, that paper's from a black guy. I'll give him a few extra points. That that does that doesn't never cross my mind. I'm going to be colorblind. So there's a, there are times where I'm colorblind, just like there are times where I'm anti-racist. But when it gets distorted and, and, and out of control, that causes problems. Well, what a... Uh, what should we be doing? What what is the right approach to race relations here? Can you can you tell us about your model? Sure. So I I talk about what in the past I've called mutual accountability or mutual responsibility. I'm using the term collaborative conversations because it, it it seems to communicate more of what I'm talking about. And so what I'm talking about is, and in my book I only have one chapter that's that's theological. Uh, I intentionally did that because I wanted a book you can give your non-Christian friends. But I did think there's a theological basis for what I'm arguing. And if you want me to, I can go into that. But my, my, my main argument is that we have to talk to each other in ways where we can hear one another. And to find solutions where we bring people aboard. And so here's a question. If you can get 100% what you want, but half the country's mad at you, is that sustainable? No. If you can get if you can communicate and dialogue and maybe compromise some and get 80% of what you want and have 80% of the country supporting you, your solution is that what you get, you're going to keep. It's sustainable. We only get there when we talk to people in, in a way that's productive and hear what the concerns are. When we engage in moral suasion in a healthy way instead of power and trying to force what we want on people. We can move away from polarization, from from estrangement, towards some sort of reconciliation, but only if we're willing to have these important conversations. So this is what I mean by, you know, mutual is that everyone is responsible for having a healthy conversation. The solution is not necessarily mutual. It does not mean the solution is going to be that whites and blacks and Spanx and Asians, and they, they all do the same thing. Could it be? Yes, it could be. Everything's on the table. But I think a lot of times it's not, that's not going to be the solution. But everyone, whites, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, Native Americans, has is a responsibility for fostering a healthy conversation. If you're not, then you're part of the problem. And so 
you know, what vision would I have? Not a combat vision, not an anti-racism vision, a vision of a society that that's more of a community where we work rather than go to war, whatever situations come up. That's the vision that I would have. Yeah, so what uh, what does that look like practically? Like, uh, how, uh, how to, how, uh, so if I say, all right, this is this mutual accountability, this sure. is what I want to do. How how should my day look different tomorrow? Yeah. Okay, so I'm glad I'm glad you asked that because that that's, you know, but the next step. You know, I've written on race for a long time, and one of the creep questions I hear often is, you know, well, what should we do? And I think that's, that's all fair. And so when I wrote this book, I wanted to be able to follow it up. Now, being a researcher, that research takes time. And what I want to do is use research to better help people have these conversations in their churches, in their organizations, the way they do diversity training in schools. Imagine if you, instead of you had an anti-racism brought in, brought in schools, you had a program of mutual accountability, a program of collaborative conversation brought in schools. Uh, you know, I think you're going to have fewer protests, and I think you're going to have better relations between the students, ultimately. So, you know, figuring out these sort of programs. I do think that there's something that we can do in our interpersonal lives. You know, we can start taking an attitude of trying to learn where other people are coming from, rather than automatically jumping onto the talking points of our side and going to war with other individuals. So I think there's things we can do in our day-to-day life, how we can uh, look at our organizations, how we can uh, train people, uh, how we can change our mindset. Uh, and yeah, m- you know, not a lot of people will be doing this at first, but I think as there's more success, and I hope my research will bear this out, uh, people will be encouraged to go a different route than the routes that, that we already going on yeah. now just just to go back to one of our earlier uh, colorblind criticisms uh if if i'm on the colorblind side of things I'm, I'm going to come to this and say yeah yeah what what you're saying is great we we should do mm-hmm. this but it should be economic right it should be poor people yeah. in the middle class talking to each other uh and it should be you know the the wealthy and the, that should be the conversation we're having uh why why should this be over? I mean, maybe we should be doing both, right? Maybe it should be economics yeah. and race. But why, why should this be race as the, the foundation here? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a problem with people doing all this economics, you know, because I think that there's a value to that. So, you know, you're not going to hear me say, oh, no, 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 only on race. I, I think that this is an approach that can shape a lot of things. I mean, our, our political divide. What if we actually got Republicans and Democrats actually talk to each other rather than yell at each other? I mean, you know, uh, make America a much better place. But here's why, you know, look, if someone comes into the conversation and says, look, you know, I see things from an economic point of view, and here's the problem I see, and here's the solution I see, that person's entitled to bring that into the conversation. You know, you can bring what you can bring your perspective into the conversation. As long as that person learns how to communicate in a way where they can hear and is willing to listen to other points of view. Now, usually I'll say usually because there could be situations where, where that's not the case. Usually that's not going to you know that's not going to be my perspective in the conversation. I'm not going to usually say yes. We can just do a purely economic approach. Although there, I think there's something to be said about that in certain situations. You know, so I'm saying yeah, you know that maybe we need an economic component to what we're doing. So, but then I will get a chance to express my concerns and my perspectives, and to you know value what this person is bringing in by actively listening. Uh, you know, in my own words, putting his or her ideas out there and saying, here's where I see the strengths, here I see the weaknesses, 
and they can do the same, and then we can work together, and we'll probably come up with some solution that has components the person cares about, as well as components that I care about. So, I'm, you know, by no means, people can bring what, you know, people want to come and say, we ignore race, code line, let's just live together and ignore race. That's a perspective that they're representing a lot of people. We got to hear that perspective. So, I'm, I'm not, and this probably is a big difference between what I'm doing and what I'm doing. I'm not saying this is off limits. You can't bring this into the conversation. I'm saying this is what your deeply felt beliefs bring into the conversation. But be ready to listen and work with others. Now, if, if I, so that, that I think would be a, a colorblind side criticism of, of your mm-hmm. project. Uh, from the, the anti-racism side, I can imagine at least some of the anti-racism authors uh, coming along and saying, all right, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll give this a try. We're happy to sit down and have a conversation with, uh, with majority culture. Uh, but what we won't compromise on is that whatever comes out of this, uh, minorities get more, and the majority culture has to give up more than minorities have to give up. Even though, yes, we're all going to give up something, and uh, the, the end goal is that this is going to be better for minorities, that, that's the thing we won't compromise on. Uh, yeah. where, where, where do you fit, uh, uh, and maybe I'm being uncharitable, right? Maybe that's not the anti-racist yeah. view. Sure. Um, but I, I, I think that that sort of feels like what, what they would say. Uh, where do they fit in around the table then? If that's an accurate representation, feel free to tell me I'm wrong on that. Yeah. You know, I, I think just to be honest, that probably most people coming in are probably have something that's non-negotiable that they're thinking about. Sure. And part of what we're trying to get at is what's non-negotiable, what's, what is negotiable. Because what that non-negotiable means, you know, and whether it's something like that or something else, what that non-negotiable idea means is that this is of incredible value to me. Now, what I think can happen, and it won't happen every single time, is that people come up with different ideas, and they each have something non-negotiable, and they give up the negotiable to the non-negotiable, and maybe you can create an idea where you keep all those non-negotiables in the plan. Now, when that happens, I think that could be fantastic. Because when that happens, then everyone has stake in the game. And they've given up something to get stake in the game. And now they will fight for that because they know that they're getting their non-negotiable. So I think that, that that's fair. Now, now, I think that people have to, uh, you know, there's always a temptation to say everything's non-negotiable. You know, that, you know I want everything, it's all non-negotiable. Party politics, is, right? That, that's really not the way it is. You know, we know that, hey, you know what, I'll, I'll give up this in order to get that. And if I if giving up that means you're going to help me keep this, that's how I have to start thinking about it. So part of this, part of this conversation is not just for others to learn about what you want, but for you to learn what you want. Because you're, you're like, wow, you know, maybe this isn't as important as I thought it was because I may be able to keep that instead. Uh, so, so I don't have a problem with people coming in thinking, well, you know. No, I do have a problem saying if they come in thinking everything is non-negotiable. You, know, you can't come in, you can't come, no one, colorblindness, antivirus, no one can come in, everything is non-negotiable. To come in and say, you know, I, I care passionately about all of this, but I'm going to listen and see what we can work out. And in the process of that, I, I think that we'll find out what's truly non-negotiable, what's truly is not. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, uh, Again, hopefully those were those were reasonable representations because I I think the anti-racism crowd does want to correct historical injustices and they do want better lives for minorities and they they would not want to compromise on those perfectly reasonably not want to compromise on those. Um, 
I think uh, another another thing I kept bumping up against uh, when uh, when I was reading your book, uh, and and again I'm I'm coming from a position of I'm largely sympathetic to it. This 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 feels right to me, based on my kind of first read through. But uh, uh, one issue I, I kept running into was the the issue of representation, mm-hmm. uh, and I think this is where this conversation over race is fundamentally different from any of the partisan conversations we have. Uh, because if if I want to know, well, on issues, where do Republicans stand, where do Democrats stand, uh, there are official representatives and official documents that I can go to. Uh, that's that's harder with race. I, I don't represent all white people. I, I barely sure. represent myself, right? Uh, 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 and I, I think that's, uh, that's maybe one of the advantages that some of the anti-racism folks have, is they are willing to say, well, we are speaking for such yeah. and such minority. Uh, how how can we have these conversations if if at the end of the day we're only we're only really speaking for ourselves or none of us are speaking in any kind of yeah. official capacity again kind of practically how how should we think about that and how should we how should we work through that yeah I, you know i think when issues come up you know certain groups tend to take certain sides of, you know just use an example the whole school board stuff sure you know like you know uh, one parent doesn't represent all parents on all issues. So, you know, that one parent's going to not say, well, you know, we all agree upon this and that. But if you have a bunch of parents who are protesting what the school board's doing, then, yeah, they're going to have people who are articulate, represent, rep, rep, people who are articulating their representation of them. And the school board, honestly, will have, will have people who represent them. So I do think that that, that does tend to break out when you get to specific issues. Now, if you're talk, just talking about Hey, you know, how, what does we go with race? You know, who's what do the whites say? What do the blacks say? You know, yeah, I think that's problematic. But you know, I'm really talking about specific issues that we have to work out. Uh, where and and I think that when you look at what we know about social groups and in groups and out groups, that it is reasonable to think that certain individuals are going to develop a, a role of representing where where these people come from. So I'm not as concerned about that once we're looking at issues. I think there's value in having people just have just learn how to have these conversations in general where all you represent is your own opinion. Because that helps you learn how to navigate, how to listen, how to do that sort of thing. But I think we're gonna use it to solve problems. Usually the problems come because certain groups of people are starting to argue about something. So they have someone who can represent their argument. Uh, well I have a I have a couple of odds and ends questions as we as we sort of move towards the end on this, but first, any anything else you want to say about your mutual accountability model? Uh, yeah, I just know that, you know, this. I'm just giving generalities, you know, the book is more specific about, you know, how you engage in active listening, and talking about moral suasion, that sort of thing, so, you know, if, it's not, if it doesn't seem like it's in depth, it's something I have thought about, but obviously in a show like this, I can only do so much. Right, uh, and, and again, uh, Excellent stuff that lines up with. Uh, I, I was uh, reminded as I was reading this of. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the author right now. High Conflict, uh, the book that just came out. Um, Amanda something, uh, mm-hmm. and then uh, uh, Jonathan uh, Haidt has some Haidt 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 has Haidt. There we go. Uh, mm-hmm. Has has some uh, some works uh, along these lines as well that I was reading through. And I was like, this this kind of sounds. Uh, like these other works that I read, and I was like, "Yeah, this this sounds right." Um, 
A couple of, again, kind of odds and ends questions. Uh, at the beginning, you, you talk about work that you had done, well, almost 20 years ago at this point, 15 years ago, uh, a previous book that you'd, uh, you'd, you'd put out. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the models, and I wanted to ask you about this because this sounded really intriguing, uh, and I should have written down the name of it. One of the models was basically racial reconciliation or, or working through our racial issues using education. Uh, Multiculturalism? There we go. Uh, and you, you talk about how that is basically gone. Uh, and I, all I know about it is the you know paragraph I, I read about it in your book. Yeah, I, I think multiculturalism. I, I'm not saying it's disappeared completely, but you know the uh, the philosophical base of multiculturalism was more of a sort of like a, a postmodern perspective, and that's kind of gone out of fashion with the rise of anti-racism. Because I mean, if anti-racism is anything, it's not postmodern. Right. You know, it, it's not. Well, we we can't know truth. We, you know, uh, truth is what you decide it is. You know, it is is definitely not a postmodern. And so, uh, I think that there, you know, there's still, you know, multiculturalism is still taught. And I'm not saying it's it's gone completely, but I don't think it's a major force. When people, when people who are more progressive want to talk about race, they usually don't go with a multicultural route today. Whereas some of them were doing that 15, 20 years ago. Right. Uh, a, a second kind of odds and ends question. I, I did want to uh, ask you a little bit about theology because you do have a chapter on it in your book, uh, and I think it's it's worth uh, thinking through. Uh, theologically, uh, so if we have colorblind, uh, the colorblind approach, anti-racism, and uh, in, in your approach, uh, I'm I'm assuming that Christians of good conscience could could grab onto any of those uh, as long as they're not being driven by racial hatred of some kind. Yeah. Uh, there there should be room each way, but. Uh, theologically, why do you settle on on your approach uh, other than because it's your approach is the right one? Yeah, yeah, and you know, just to be clear, you know, our salvation isn't determined by how we handle racial issues. So, sure. so yeah, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make some sort of general statement. You know, these these Christians are, are bad Christians because they disagree about racial racial issues. But what I will argue is that I think this is more scripturally based than the others because what the others are basically is people saying I have the solution. And now I must impose a solution on you. Both code blindness and anti-racism do that. Uh, my thing is, look, we, because of human depravity, can't trust my solution or your solution. So on, on this side of heaven, what we have to do is work together so that we can find the best solution. Because we, human depravity creates a situation to where I can't trust myself, my own selfishness, when I'm trying to figure out a solution. That I'm going to find solutions that will work for me, as opposed to work for everyone. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm, you know, that I don't think about people at all, but just, you know, my biases are going to be in that direction, and and I've exposed them to people who disagree with me in order that we can find better solutions. So in that way, I think this is more scripturally based because it, it it allows us to remember about human depravity, which to me is a very key element uh, of our Christian faith. You know, without human depravity, without our depraved nature would we even need Christ you know uh, so so I think that's very key I would also say that uh, you know and one of the pushbacks of this is you know well what about the value you know that we're making which is God you talk about depravity and, and, and yeah obviously where I think that Christianity gets it right and humanistic philosophy is wrong is that Christianity gets both right human depravity and human worth human philosophies only get human worth correct for different reasons, but they get that correct. And to me, that can lead to uh, to a lot of problems. Uh, you know, the, the most dangerous 
group in the world is the group that's convinced that they are right, and 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 therefore everyone has to. Because that's that's where you start to oppress others. When you think about all depressive governments, is because they had a philosophy that this is right and there's no way it's wrong. Uh, and if you don't agree with that, you know, then we do whatever we want to you. So when you have this philosophy of humans are, are, are the highest pinnacle of evolution and, and our abilities can lead us to these glorious heights, you can come up with, uh, you know, communism. Uh, you can come up with something like that because you're convinced that you're right. Uh, understanding human depravity, I think, help, gives us that balance, that nuance we need to know, yes, we are image bearers of Christ, but we also have depravity in us. So let us walk cautiously together. Yeah, and again, over we're uh, chatting a little bit about this before uh, overtones of of some of the uh, uh, founders. I mean, that's basically James Madison mm-hmm. uh, on, albeit on race instead of on politics and factions. Uh, we are, he would say, we are all selfish, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we have to do is grind some of that selfishness off, uh, and the end result being we don't any of us get what we want, and we instead yeah. get something something better, something we couldn't have come up with on our mm-hmm. own. Uh, well, I've, I have one more question that I might cut out because uh, I, I didn't prep you for it, uh, but it is theological, and you are free to decline this. Uh, something that I've, I've kind of wondered, though. Uh, do you think there will be a race in heaven? Hmm. My understanding, and once again, is speculation. My understanding is our bodies are not going to be the same as they are today. Yeah. And so that would lead me to think that we probably won't have race, per se. Uh, I wonder if we will be a spirit and in a sense, and this is just speculation, you know, I believe God is multidimensional uh, beyond time and space, and I wonder if that will be our experience in heaven as well. Uh, my notion is that we'll, we'll probably recognize each other, but and so we may remember the race the person was, but I don't think we'll have race in heaven. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, I'm, I, think it, I think it's a difficult question as to whether there will be gender in heaven, given mm-hmm. what Jesus says about marriage and no one there will yeah. be married or given in marriage which I think makes race difficult. And it, yeah. there, there are passages that seem to suggest there are, passages that seem, seem to suggest there won't be, and I don't know. So there we go. Well, we'll end uh, either with the other question or with that note of mystery. Uh, Dr. Yancey, thank you so much for taking time thank to come you. on the show. Uh, thank you for writing this book. Listeners, please do go out and pick it up and uh, read uh, Beyond Racial Division uh, by George Yancey of Baylor University. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting ChristianHumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash City of Man podcast or get in touch with us at City of Man podcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island and the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters this land was made for you and me as I went a-walking that ribbon of highway